This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get, Get out there and speak to your farmers and jump in the Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you. Thanks for your company. Coming up over the next half hour, a pastoralist in Central Australia says he's losing too many cattle a year that have been hit and killed by trains. Yeah, it happens fairly often. We'll lose about 20 a year from train lines. Sometimes you have a week like this where you lose three, then you might go a couple of months of nothing, then you'll get another two or three. It's all over the shop, really. We'll have more on that issue shortly. Plus, dogs already eat some pretty questionable things anyway. But what about maggot food? Stay tuned to find out what I'm talking about there. But first today, JBS is a corporate food giant that controls a huge amount of the food you eat, owning some of the most popular brands found in their supermarket aisles and a large portion on the country's meat processing plants. But what many consumers don't know is the scandalous corporate practices behind the company. This week, Four Corners investigated the company that has taken a major slice of Australia's food production sector while being exposed internationally for bribery, corruption and environmental vandalism. Eden Heinen spoke with reporter Grace Tobin about the program and what they uncovered. My interest was sparked at the end of last year when JBS received approval from the Foreign Investment Review Board and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg to take over another two major Australian food businesses. Uh, you know, that decision in itself was seen by a lot of people as quite controversial because JBS is already the biggest uh, meat company in Australia. It owns such a huge slice of the food we eat already. And then on top of that, it's been connected to a litany of scandals around the world. Um, So from my perspective, I just wanted to look into who this company was, uh, why were we trusting them with such a huge part of our uh, food supply system. JBS might not be well known for many Australians. How many brands do they are they connected to here in Australia and are many farmers reliant on selling their meat to them? Yeah, look, JBS owns a, you know, a huge portion of the kind of beef, lamb, pork industry now and uh, even salmon. The, their brands aren't necessarily really well known in themselves, perhaps with the exception of Primo, which is, you know, the kind of bacon king that we probably all buy from the supermarket from time to time. Uh, but they supply, you know, Coles, Woolworths, Audi, they even supply McDonald's. So certainly uh, people would probably be eating these products without even knowing it. Farmers as well are heavily reliant on JBS because they own so many processing facilities around Australia, abattoirs, you know, all throughout Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania. Uh, So farmers really can't avoid doing business with them. And what is it exactly that they've been accused of doing overseas? Yeah, look, as I said, it's it's a real litany of scandals in recent years. Uh, we're talking massive bribery and corruption in Brazil. The company uh, paid off hundreds of politicians there in order to grow the company. Then there's anti-competitive practices like price fixing in the United States. There's food safety breaches, like there was a rotten meat scandal. But we've also investigated the company's corporate character right here in Australia and looked at some serious failings in worker safety. In, in what way? 
we found that JBS has repeatedly failed to protect its employees from serious injury and even death. This is really significant because JBS is a big employer here. It employs about 14,000 people across Australia. And, you know, many of them work in meatworks, abattoirs that can be pretty dangerous places uh, to be in. Uh, But what our investigation shows is that, you know, it's JBS's failures that are putting some of these employees at risk. And you'll hear from an employee who suffered third-degree burns in Tasmania. There's also the mother of a young man who actually died on JBS's watch in New South Wales. But last year in September, JBS Australia's CEO Brent Eastwood told ABC Rural that what happened in Brazil is unfortunate and that there are some overseas concerns, but now it's not how the company operates in Australia. He says that they're an ethical and compliant company. Do you think from what you just said that many would find that a fair statement and that what happens overseas shouldn't be connected to here in Australia? Yeah, look, I think what we've found is it's very difficult to actually separate out JBS Australia from uh, JBS in Brazil. The two billionaire brothers who, who own the company, who are still major shareholders, they were the ones who confessed to this massive bribery scheme in Brazil. One of the brother's sons is actually overseeing uh, the Australian operations and South American operations. So, you know, in that sense, it's all connected to this day uh, in the scheme of like the culture really hasn't changed, it seems. And just finally, Grace, what what surprised you the most when researching this story? I imagine it would have surprised you on a lot of levels. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think definitely I've realised I would be buying a lot of JBS myself and I had not much idea about what this company was. I've worked in regional Queensland, in Townsville, Rockhampton, so I knew they owned abattoirs up there, but I had no idea about the control that they had of, uh, you know, the the food system in general. And I think it's raised big questions for me about, well, who do we want to trust with that control. Food security is becoming such a big issue for all of us. And so we want that security to be in the right hands um, and that control in the right hands. So I think that's what sort of shocked me the most is that we're giving that control to a company that's connected to so many scandals, so many malpractices around the world. Four Corners reporter Grace Tobin speaking with Eden Heinen. So there's been a lot of questions now raised about uh, Brazilian company JBS. New South Wales Farmers President James Jackson is mortified by the reports and allegations of corruption, price fixing and unsafe work practices. He's speaking here with Michael Condon. And I think this is another case study, if you like, in the ongoing failure of Australian competition laws and, and indeed our merger and acquisition laws and indeed the activity of the the Foreign Investment Review Board. So I think some of the structural issues and some of our our legal responses, if you like, our competition laws have shown to be wanting because we see uh, organisations develop uh, monopolistic sort of power over some of these supply chains. Uh, We see, you know, uh, they have a large uh, footprint in the pork processing and in... um, red meat processing, uh, JBS in the country. So I think they they haven't actually breached any competition laws in this country. What I'm concerned about it is the competition laws themselves. They are not fit for purpose. They actually uh, create an unfair playing field, if you like, uh, for new competitors coming into the space. And even Rod Sims, when he left the uh, ACCC, 
He said that the uh, merger and acquisition laws were not fit for purpose to stop creeping acquisitions, to stop, you know, uncompetitive situations developing in the Australian economy. Now, farmers are the victims of these these laissez-faire competition laws, and I think that was the big message uh, that came out of last night's uh, Four Corners uh, exercise because it's not it's not only meat processing, it's right across the supply chain. It's it's retailing, uh, food retailing in this country. Uh, it's the poultry meat industry, the concentration in that. We've gone from 17 processors down to two in New South Wales. This is just not, there is not the options for farmers now, you know, to engage in the marketplace, we are seeing a, a, a contraction in the competition. Uh, my challenge to both the parties, or all parties, if you like, involved in this election, is let's do something about it. Let's have an investigation. Let's have an ACCC or a Treasurer-initiated ACCC investigation into the grain supply chain, for instance. Uh, we see canola prices at Vancouver $1,400 and at Geelong $900. Now, there's a reason for that. It's competition failure. Mm. And we are suffering. We have suffered for years due to poor competition policy in this country, and it's got to be fixed. There have been uh, efforts to bring fair terms of trade contracts and change the law in that, but it hasn't gone through the the Parliament. So you'd be calling on on both sides to, to make an effort there. Absolutely. There's unfair contract arrangements. I mean, some of these contract arrangements, they can retrospectively change the conditions of the contract. I mean, you, 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 these, are, these are conditions that, you know, any reasonable-minded per person would reject. But our, our legal system does not prevent these monopolies from having these, these uh, coercive contracts that, that really... They stop investment in agriculture. If we're going to reach that $100 billion model, we've, we've got to actually have innovation. We've got to actually have competitive tension to drive that innovation and to drive productivity. And at the moment, we don't. Now, you mentioned the issue of canola prices there, and I, and I take that point. Are there other examples of that? Uh, you know, are we seeing livestock producers who should be getting more money that, that aren't? Are we, are we seeing, uh, you know, other areas of where farmers in horticulture maybe aren't getting the prices that they should because of unfair competition? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, horticulture is a classic case. I mean, uh, any commodity we see milk, uh, the whole dairy cabinet, we see uh, competition failure uh, at the retail space. Any of those highly perishable goods uh, are at the mercy of the uh, supermarket duopoly. We even see things like uh, poultry meat is at uh, risk here. Red meat, I think, has a component of exports about them, but there is gatekeepers in the red meat supply chain, you know, especially in the processing. We see it in, in uh, grains, all the grains industry. In fact, we've been calling for this uh, ACCC investigation, a high-powered ACCC investigation into the grains industry. We've got to fix those problems. Otherwise, we are going to see a lot of that value not get back to the farm gate, not get back to regional Australia, and we won't see that investment that we desperately need in agriculture uh, if we don't have these things fixed. James Jackson, he's the president of the New South Wales Farmers Association, speaking there with Michael Condon. And you can catch up on Four Corners and the Butchers from Brazil story on ABC iView. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. 
Now, a cattle station in central Australia says trains are hitting and killing their cattle on an almost weekly basis. Angus McKay from Embera and Idrakara station says he's losing at least 20 head a year. Recently, he was alerted that three had been struck in three different spots across his property. Hugo Rickard-Bell went out with Mr McKay to look for the carcasses. You can see where this has been hit up here, Hugo. It's bloody been collected, dragged along the railway line here. Yeah, there's bits of gore and hide and everything here, rib bones. What are we walking up to here? Oh, that's indistinguishable, that part. It's a piece of cow. Can't tell what, though, but it's all been ripped into chunks along here. And this is the second one you've found this week? Yeah, we had one yesterday. We had to go on euthanage. Had a broken leg on the side of the line. And then, as you can see, this one's been killed outright. And there's another one we've got to find yet, too, that's further down the line here from where we are now. Oh, the first one, we were notified by email on Monday that there'd been a, a beast struck that day that was still alive. So we immediately went out to find it. And then, um, yeah, we, we found it probably two or three metres up the side of the line with a broken leg. It had been there for a good few hours thrashing around. Um, we, we euthanised it and put it out of its misery, but, yeah, it's very very disturbing to find an animal in that situation. No-one likes shooting livestock. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do, but we have to do it. You know, we, we've got a duty of care to look after our animals, and if they're injured in such, such a case like that, we've got to put them down immediately. Angus McKay owns and operates Umbiara and Idracow Station. 300 kilometres south of Alice Springs. The property has 138 kilometres of rail cutting it up the middle and the daily trains that pass through are wreaking havoc on his herd. Yeah, it happens fairly often. We'll lose about 20 a year from train lines. Sometimes you have a week like this where you lose three, then you might go a couple of months of nothing, then you'll get another two or three. It's all over the shop, really. What's dragging the cattle onto the line? Why do, why do you think there you know so many getting hit? In these good seasons like this, all these burrow pits on the line, like where we are behind us here, they catch water from the rain and attracts all the cattle here. Opens up in a fresh country, gets them away from their water points. So, yeah, they're attracted to the water along the railway line. The burrow pits Angus is talking about scatter along the line no more than around 50 metres from the rail. Originally dug up when the rail was built in the 1970s, the dirt was used for the construction of the track. What are you asking from, from I guess, the operators? Oh, mainly, Hugo, we want the line cleared. So um, at least the train can see the cattle, the cattle can see the train, you know, whoever's driving the train's got the chance to get on the horn, scare the cattle off, but in some places it's so thick they won't see the cattle till they're on top of them. And so why haven't you fenced it off or anything like that? Well, they're so close to the line, it's inside the uh, rail operator's corridor, so we can't really go in there fencing it off or doing too much. When was the last time uh, you saw dozers on, on this sort of country, you know, clearing the line and maintaining this? Oh, never. We've been here for 60 years. This line went in the late 70s. I've never seen it cleared in my time. So. The Australian Rail Track Corporation owns the rail corridor, the strip of land roughly 200 metres wide that the track sits on. They sublease it to one rail one of the largest rail freight service providers in Australia. ABC Rural reached out to ARTC for a comment on the maintenance conditions of the line. They explained in a statement, whilst ARTC leases the line to one rail and has done so for many years, any questions relating to the operations and maintenance of that line need to be directed to one rail. How long have you been asking for something to be done on this line, some sort of maintenance? I've uh, been close to 12 months there. We've been talking with the operators to try and make something happen. 
What has their main response been? Oh, very little. They say they don't know what can be done. That They say clearing the line may or may not fix the problem. But in the last conversations I had with them, they basically said it's not their issue to deal with. So. Losing 20 head of cattle is a significant number for any operation. With current cattle prices, that's a new four-wheel drive every year. But for the McKay family, it's the welfare of their cattle that concerns them the most. Well, it's, it's a significant loss, especially coming out of this drought we've been in. You know, every animal is precious to us at the moment. We've just gone through the worst drought and living history up here so you know every animal we lose is a kick in the guts so 20 head is a, is a lot and we don't even know if it stops there those 20 head they're just the ones we find too this whole road you know, we've got 130 kilometers of road along the railway line here we're only driving down the eastern side a lot of places we can't see what's on the western side so you can be driving along there could be a dead beast and you've, you've got no idea it's even there Angus McKay from Umbera and Idrakaura stations speaking with Hugo Ricard-Bell. And the ABC reached out to One Rail Australia who said in a statement they're looking at alternatives to reduce cattle strikes. However, it should be a joint responsibility with the landowner. And they've been in touch with the landowner in question and a representative is meeting with them on site next week. So there's an article up online as well. If you'd like to read more, just search on the ABC Rural website. Brooke Nindorf with you and still to come on Countrywide, did you know that in Adelaide there's a banana ripening room? But why? Banana farmers, most of them are situated either far north Queensland around Cairns. To get the fruit from those areas to Adelaide, delivery time is usually more than three three to four days. So to, to get the product to, to us safely, they have to harvest the product from the banana tree in a mature but green condition. So the fruit is the same size but is in a very hard and green colour. We receive them and we essentially put them into large cool rooms which try to replicate the conditions in those growing areas. Some very interesting stuff. We'll have more on that one shortly. But before that, you've likely heard that China has once again plunged into another COVID lockdown. And like before, it's already having significant flow-on effects. Shipping for agricultural machinery, wool and other bulk commodities has been delayed for the best part of two years. But the latest lockdown has created a global backlog, which makes previous delays look insignificant. Luke Radford spoke with Paul Zalai, the Director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and the Secretariat of the Australian Peak Shippers Association to find out more. Look, we've still got major congestion in, in ports around the world. You know, you, you mentioned China, but also still off the um, off the coast of the, of USA, uh, Los Angeles, um, still multiple container vessels there trying to deal with the volumes into the US. And then again, as you mentioned, China, you know, the rest of the world seems to have moved on from the lockdowns with COVID, but China is still going for this uh, zero policy and that's having some significant effects. We've we experienced it over the last few years with China. China, the, we had the, obviously the global lockdowns back in 2020. In 21, we had Yantian and a partial close of um, Ningbo. But now it's probably worse again. Um, Shenzhen, Tianjin, Shanghai, uh, all suffering terribly now with these lockdowns. When you talk about congestion in those ports, I suppose for someone that doesn't have a great understanding of the freight industry, can you explain what does that physically look like? Well, again, we're quite fortunate here in Australia. Although we've experienced congestion here, we don't see vessels off our coast uh, mounting up uh, the shipping lines will do is like slow steaming to make sure that they reach a port and can get service rather than anchoring offshore. Off the 
the west coast of the USA, for example, it's not uncommon to see over the last couple of years anywhere between about 40 and 100 container vessels just queuing up waiting to get into port. Now, that's not just an issue for the US. That then has flow-on effects for the global trade. And, and now we're seeing a very similar picture off the coast of China, you know, with Shanghai in particular. And we are a very small global world, really, when it comes to shipping. Everything has a flow-on effect. So we saw the issue with the, um, the blockage of the vessel uh, in the Suez Canal. Well, that sort of fades into insignificance with the issues that we're seeing here now at some of the major ports. So we talk about the flow-on effects. At the moment, what's, I suppose, the current state of global trade? Is is there a number that you can give to sort of illustrate the delay at the moment, or is it all variable? Oh, look, it's all variable. And I think that, you know, the shipping lines will adjust accordingly. So they, they don't want to have their vessels at anchor just sitting idle. That, that doesn't help anyone. So we're seeing the shipping lines adjusting on the run and they um, will bypass ports like Shanghai and and even have blank sailings where they might just miss a voyage altogether just to avoid adding to that extra congestion. Now, that doesn't help importers and exporters. So any of your listeners who are waiting to buy their new lounge or get any other goods or services, you know, you could expect a further extensive delay. And then obviously trade is two ways. So our regional exporters will also be feeling the pinch as well. Paul Zellier, the Director of the Freight and Trade Alliance, and the Secretariat of the Australian Peak Shippers Association speaking there with Luke Radford. Now, for states that don't grow bananas, how do they get them to be perfectly ripe after they've been sent from the banana-growing regions? Now, while South Australia doesn't really grow bananas, just outside of Adelaide, there are some tropical rooms where these fruits bloom. Reporting from SA, Eliza Burlage has this story. Yeah, we have no bananas. Unlike the song, we do have bananas here in SA, but they often arrive from further north, still green. And that's where Peter Kukos comes in. He's a wholesaler at the South Australian Produce Market, which has five ripening facilities. And ahead of National Banana Day, he's agreed to peel back the curtain on how it all works. Banana farmers, most of them are situated either far north Queensland around Cairns or far, far western point of WA. So to get the to get the fruit from those areas to Adelaide, delivery time is usually more than three three to four days. So to, to get the product to, to us safely, they have to harvest the product from the banana tree in a mature but green condition. So the fruit is the same size, but it's in a very hard and green colour. It is then packaged up into cartons and sent to us in Adelaide. We receive them and we essentially put them into large cool rooms which try to replicate the conditions in those growing areas. So very humid and very warm. And we open them, which we call that process conditioning, over a period of about three to five days and we can make them yellow and ready to eat. What does the ripening facility look like? The banana ripening rooms are large cool rooms that use special forced air refrigeration and they also use ethylene, naturally occurring ethylene gas and humidity. And it really feels like if you open up the door of a banana ripening cool room, it feels like you're in some kind of tropical 
rainforest in Queensland. It really feels that way. It's quite unique. Penny Reedy is the marketing manager for the South Australian produce market. She says local ripening facilities provide a bunch of benefits. It is a huge boost to the economy, the fact that this work comes into South Australia. So it creates employment and it also gives us quality control over the bananas and, and particularly in the biosecurity sense as well. When the bananas come into South Australia in a hard green state, that avoids any fruit fly being able to be travelled with the fruit. So by bringing it in in a hard green state and being able to ripen it here in South Australia, it reduces those risks or eliminates those risks of fruit fly, which is so important for biosecurity for the horticultural industry. It also means that you're getting a fresher produce if you're buying locally ripened bananas as well. Are you aware of many changes to ripening facilities in terms of technology or in terms of the number of them in the last few decades? There has been a major ripening facility opened in Victoria, which was originally built to service the eastern seaboard. We are seeing some of the South Australian supermarket bananas being ripened at that facility. Having more ripening facilities in South Australia, would that help more with the supply of bananas to meet the demand as well as creating jobs? Yeah, it definitely would create jobs. And Australians love bananas. 96% of us put them into our supermarket trolley every week. So it's definitely one of those staples. It's the number one selling grocery item in supermarkets above everything else. So the more South Australians that eat bananas, although we're not growing them here and it's not supporting South Australian growers, it is definitely supporting the horticultural industry and providing employment through the South Australian produce market. It was Penny. Reedy, she's the marketing manager for the SA Produce Market, ending that story from Eliza Burlage. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Now, you've probably seen your dog eat some pretty dodgy things at some point, so it should be no surprise to hear that dogs are lapping up food made out of maggots. Yes, in the future, we might all be eating bugs for protein, even our four-legged friends. Vet Steph Strubar hails from a beef farm just outside Albury and has come up with a dog food that is made from fly larvae. She hopes it might be the environmentally friendly dog food of the future. And she told Annie Brown how they make the dog treats. Essentially, the black soldier flies are farmed, just like you farm any meat product, but they require 98% less energy, 96% less water, and also a lot less waste. And they make a complete protein that's really high in omega-6s as well, obviously, um, and much more sustainable, as well as being hypoallergenic. So in the pet space... Eight out of ten dietary allergies in dogs is caused from red meat and dietary allergies is is a really big and leading concern in in the pet space and and the incidence is growing enormously and results with skin, skin issues as well as gut issues. And so this is providing a much more healthy protein that's much more sustainable and it's in the form of the powerhouse protein that's um, black soldier fly larvae. So tell me a bit about how do you harvest the larvae to make this dog food? So it's a very specialised process and the black soldier fly larvae are actually done in laboratories in, in Australia. So they're growing in labs from essentially the pupae uh, and then they grow out. It's only a, really a 26-day life cycle and they grow out to a certain level 
um, normally at around the 13-day uh, point, they're harvested, and that's when they're at their peak protein level with the most nutrients. They're then it's dried and it's turned into a meal. So essentially, it's exactly the same as chicken meal or beef meal, and and the products that go into kibble into dog food. It looks and feels exactly the same. I guess a lot of dog food is made out of the offcuts, though, that come from abattoirs and that sort of thing. So isn't that a good way of finding other uses for meat? Yes, absolutely. And that won't change. The, and I'm a big advocate of that. The fact of the matter is we don't have enough red meat for both humans and for those offcuts to be going to the growing pet consumer space. So that's not going to change. The demand for that product is still going to be there and it's really important that it is there. It's just we need to provide more sustainable resources and, and really divert the... Because um, there's a lot of pet food that's now being sold as it's human-grade quality products and that's great, but it's also pushing your prime meat um, ingredients into the pet space when really uh, that should be going into the human space and we can use a whole variety of other ingredients that are even healthier for our pets to help service that space as well. So it's not about one or the other, it's about just providing more alternatives because this pet population is growing. That was Steph Stuber. She's a vet with the RSPCA and founder of Anna Powell, speaking to Annie Brown. That's all we've got time for on Countrywide. You can catch up on more rural stories online at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Brooke Nindorf. Thanks for your company. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.